Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at Exodus. We've already done uh, seven chapters of Exodus, and I'm doing it, uh, kind of going into depth into some of these areas. I could go a lot more in depth in some of these areas, and probably we will roll back and look at some of the things that we've already passed up to see if everybody who is trying to keep up is actually looking as deeply into Exodus as uh, they need to. Uh, the the word Exodus in the Greek actually means the way out. That's actually the way it would translate. It's not the original name of the book as laid down by Moses. The original name of the book as laid down by Moses is uh, is a Hebrew word, uh, Samot. And uh, it consists of uh, several letters. Shen and Mem in the Hebrew means name. And that's basically what the name of the book was. The name of the book was Names. And uh, that's just the way it kind of started out uh, as Moses was writing about this this book that we call Exodus, The Way Out. Uh, When you actually look at the text, or at least some of the texts, there are different texts out there of the Hebrew. And I've done a lot more writing on that. And we've mentioned it in our studies uh, probably in Exodus 7. Um, But uh, just this morning I made sure that all the audios that we've already done up to Exodus 6 are up at preparingyou.com. Along with, we have enhanced a great deal of the notes on the side panel as to what these different verses are about, the different words that are used in the verses, the the poetic nature of Moses' writing. If you actually uh, were to go to Google and look up Exodus, they would uh, there'd be probably a section in there telling you that uh, the book of Moses of the Pentateuch was not written by Moses. And they, they'll say that it, this was commonly accepted that it was written by Moses, but then new modern archaeologists and, uh, you know, scholars are looking at it and saying, ah, we don't think Moses wrote it. We don't think it was even written till like 600 B.C. And that's when it was written down from oral traditions. Because, you know, they got all kinds of reasons, you know, like there wasn't an alphabet and there wasn't the language. And, you know, we know there was Paleo-Hebrew around. And uh, Paleo-Hebrew, you know, like what came first, Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew? <laughs> and and where was the origins of the Hebrew language? Was it Moses? Actually, for a long time, I thought it pretty much was Moses. And to some degree... The defining of the the Pentateuch, I still believe, was Moses, and the language that he wrote down was it was Moses, and there's a lot of reasons for this. But the Hebrew language, I don't actually believe that it was first started to be written down by Moses. I'm beginning to suspect, based on archaeological discoveries that have actually just taken place in the last decade or two. I mean. 
we talked about it in earlier recordings about uh, Averis in Egypt, which is in the area of Goshen, which is where the uh, numerous people and more and more people are believing that's where the Israelites were centered in this area that we call Averis now. And it's only about 10% of Averis is actually excavated. And uh, they don't even know if it's 10% because they really don't know how far the community centered around Averis extended. Uh, there were lots of people supposedly leaving with Moses. I'm not sure you could concentrate all in Averis. It would have been really crowded in Averis. Uh, but... Uh, a lot of the area that they're excavating or around the area they're excavating is now farm fields. You know, it's growing wheat and uh, and other grain crops that are still uh, extreme, extremely valuable in Egypt as a commodity because they still flood the Nile in those warm tropical areas. They can grow numerous, numerous crops of grain. And uh, that's what they're doing still to this day. And understanding, even understanding what crops are growing, we'll probably get into that during the plagues, uh, to understand why some crops were destroyed and other crops were not destroyed and why that's significant in the story. Because Moses is really, his whole story of Exodus is a summary of a lot of history. And it's not just a summary of history so that you know what went on during the plagues of Egypt and what Moses was really doing. It is He's really trying to explain to you the way out and the name that you should have. Because in the Hebrew it's called the name, Shabbat. Uh, but in the Greek we call it uh, Exodus, which is the way out. Both those are fairly accurate representations of what the book is all about. But you have to understand that the word name in uh, in the Hebrew means more than just, you know, you know, the name they gave you at baptism or the name that's on your birth certificate. Uh, it actually has to do with the very identity of yourself, who you really are in your spirit, in your mind, in your heart. And a lot of times, we don't know who we really are. We don't know who we really are in our minds and in our hearts. And in exploring the these books of Moses, you know, from Genesis to Exodus and the other books, and understanding what he was really all about is going to be uh, quite a journey for some people. Of course, a number of people will probably want to bail out before we get very far. <laughs> Because they don't really want to know who they are. This is why Adam and Eve, as we've explained, fled the garden. They didn't want to see themselves as they really are. They didn't want to see themselves naked before the Lord. They didn't want to see the bottom of their heart and their mind. And they fled that. They fled the light. And of course, Christ is the light that's trying to lead us back. And you can tell me you believe in Jesus. You can tell me you believe in the way, because that's what Christianity was called, the way. And in some ways, the Christianity was the way out. And some of the parallels that we're going to see. Moses, as we said earlier, Moses had the right to come and take the people. He could come like Abraham and say, 
you keep the stuff, I'm taking the people. Because he had a right to the people. Because Moses was the Moses. He was the rightful Moses of Egypt. He was the rightful Pharaoh of Egypt. He could have ruled over the people in Egypt and sat on the throne of Pharaoh. He would have had some competition. But he also, what he was most afraid of, and we covered this in the earlier chapters, is most afraid of becoming a tyrant. He did not want to become a tyrant. He did not want to rule over the people. He had the spirit of Gideon, who I and my family will not rule over you. He had the spirit of Christ, who overcame the temptations of turning stones into bread for him and ruling over the people. He didn't want to rule over the people. And each of us have that same temptation in our lives. Do you want to rule over your neighbor? Do you want to make your neighbor do what you want them to do? Do you want to take away their free choice of doing what they think is right? See, this is this is what we're going to see. And I, I just put some recordings up and some links to uh, our pages on intentional communities. This is what Moses was facing. He was going to take the people out of the bondage of Egypt, which was a community of serfdom, a, a community of slavery, a cons- community where you did not have to exercise those gifts that makes us free. And uh, those gifts and talents that we require to have to become free and and to remain free. Th- those are actually skills, the skill of freedom. When Americans came here to, or Englishmen, or lots of different nationalities came here to America in the early days of America before the United States even existed... They were coming here to be free. And they would actually say, some of them getting on their ships to come here to America, you know, back in the days of the Mayflower and and the Pilgrims even, they said, goodbye Babylon, goodbye Egypt. Because they equated their life in Europe to that of the bondage of Egypt and the bondage of Babylon. They equated it to that actual serfdom, that community of serfdom. Now, when they came over, they were not very good at being free. They started making rules, taking away religious freedom in their own community. You could not think this. They actually executed a woman, which we've talked about in other recordings and other articles. They executed a woman because she thought, that each of us had the Holy Spirit or could have access to the Holy Spirit and know the truth. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to go to literally their personal little hierarchy in their community. And and that was the very thing that they were fleeing in Europe, a hierarchy that was dictating what you could believe and what you couldn't believe. And when we go back to uh, studying the early church, which we've done lots of stuff on, you know, what was happening at the time of Constantine. We have articles and recordings up on that so that you can see the transition from what the early church was to a false church, a false religion, proposing that it is Christianity, actually suggesting that it is the church established by Christ. 
where did they go wrong? How did they go wrong? Well, one of the key ways they have gone wrong, and it's the elephant in the room, is do you have the right to make your neighbor, to dictate to your neighbor, whether he's Christian or not Christian, to think the way that you think about God? Do you have the right to take away his religious freedom? Well, in order to understand how extensive that word religious freedom really is and what it really means, how deep it goes. Because some people say, well, I don't care if you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Jehovah Witness. I don't believe in all that stuff. Religion is about liberty. Religion is about setting the captive free. But there are all kinds of religion out there. There's all kinds of names for religions out there. There's thousands and thousands of denominations out there. But it's only pure religion that sets the captive free and keeps the captive from becoming or going back into the bondage of Egypt. But in order to know what pure religion is, you have to know the definition of the word religion. And we have articles on that. <laughs> At Preparing You, you can go to Preparing You and you can look up Religion, you can look up pure religion and you can find out what those words actually meant at the time they appear in the Bible. And we have lots of footnotes and, and what I've been also in the study of Exodus, I want to get this in before we get deep into the Exodus 8, which is what we're going to be studying today. I've been following along with Jordan Peterson's uh, symposium on Exodus where he gets uh, five or six or more scholars together, different ones sometimes, and people who are students of the Bible, and he gets them together and they talk about Exodus. They've been going through chapter after chapter. In in, uh, episode five, they're up to the beginning of chapter 12. And uh, I was tracking along with them, making note of some of the things that they were saying that maybe not quite true, making note of some of the things that they brought up that are true, and researching them out to add to our, our own study at Preparing You. But uh, when they got to chapter 12, oh man, my work is cut out for me. Because <laughs> they were jumping all over the place. Uh, and again, what they're not seeing is the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room uh, is everybody, the whole world, has again returned to the bondage of Egypt. We're all back in the bondage of Egypt, making bricks for Pharaoh. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily know it because too many people watch the movie Ten Commandments and and other movies that they've had about Moses, and we have this B-movie, uh, even some of them are epics, and, and they're not necessarily un, unworthy of watching. They're, they're great stories, but how true are these stories to what they were actually doing in Egypt, how they got into Egypt, and how Moses showed them the way out? Well, first you have to admit that you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Remember, the bondage of Egypt was you didn't really own your land. You only had a legal title to your land uh, because Moses, I mean, the Pharaoh could take your land away from you. He could take your life away from you. 
uh, he could, he definitely had the right to take at least one fifth of your labor away from you. Now, originally it was one fifth of the labor of the men of the household. It wasn't one fifth of the labor of the women of the household. But I suspect, I haven't found proof of this. We're going way back in history. Uh, but I suspect, and we know that through some sort of crafts of state, that the burdens increased upon the Israelites in this bondage of Egypt. They didn't go into bondage when a new pharaoh came up. They went into bondage in Egypt with Joseph. Joseph was a slave in Egypt, but he was given all kinds of benefits. He was second only to the Pharaoh himself. And the people who went to Goshen, their bondage was not burdensome. But it was still bondage. One-fifth of their labor belonged to the government. Now, how the government calculated that, how the government uh, enforced that, uh, did they did they only take one-fifth of the labor of men who were grown up? Or did if you had a male child, did you now own owe two-fifths of the labor of your household? Did your labor burdens increase with the children? Uh, was it just with the birth? Or was it when the child was uh, 20? When the child was 14? When the child was 8? I mean, you can go to Egypt right now. You can go to many of those Middle Eastern countries and you will find eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds, six-year-olds working. Their labor, they're working in mines. They're working making bricks. I mean, you can go see the YouTube videos of young boys flipping bricks and making bricks in that same area that the Israelites were making bricks. And one of the things that we pointed out in earlier recordings explaining, it wasn't just the Israelites who went into the bondage of Egypt. Everybody, everybody in Egypt went into the bondage of Egypt. The, the Egyptians, other, other nationalities that might have been living there, other communities that might have been living there, they all went into the bondage of Egypt, which is one-fifth of their labor, 20% of their labor, belonged to the government. That didn't exist before that famine. But it existed after it. And, and that's pretty much the way it was in America. And this is, again, back to the elephant in the room. Before 1933, you didn't, your labor was yours. Uh, there was some income tax that had existed back in 1916. But that wasn't for your average labor. That was for fiduciaries of corporations because corporations had no natural right to their labor. Corporations, when they were called a person and they got the status of person, from the government, they were no longer just a, you know, an agreement. They were now a person and that person could be taxed and that taxation could be almost anything. They could raise it as much as they wanted, but the tax on individual labor of a, of a individual, that didn't exist. There was no income tax. As a matter of fact, when income tax first 
uh, came about, you had to make $10,000 in order to owe any taxes whatsoever on your labor. It wasn't your labor, but it was the labor of fiduciaries of corporations. You know, and that was, you know, in 1933, you could sign up and you would owe tax on your labor, but again, you had to make almost $10,000 in order to be taxed on your labor. So nobody even would notice it that they signed up for income tax because most people didn't make $10,000 a year. If you $10,000 was the value of three well-constructed furnished homes. Even in 1945, uh, my folks bought a two-story home in Omaha, Nebraska with solid I think the floors were maple floors. The cabinets were built-in oak cabinets, solid oak, not just veneered <laughs> plywood, but solid oak cabinets, dishes in the cupboards, hot and cold running water, central heating, and uh, they bought that for $3,500 in 1945. Well, in 1933, you could have bought way more. So you could buy three or four pretty nice homes for $10,000. To buy those same homes today would cost you two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. And you probably wouldn't even get the quality that was in those homes. <laughs> so you could buy three or four of those homes. You would have been making, before you owed any income tax, you would be making the equivalent of over a million dollars. So income tax, even though you were signing up for it in 1933... You didn't have to pay any unless you were making over a million dollars. So nobody noticed what they were getting into. And then it was gradual because it's this graduated income tax. As inflation continued, suddenly you were making $10,000. It wasn't as valuable as $10,000 in 1933. But, you know, by 1950, 1960, people were making $10,000. Well, now they're paying income tax. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of crept in on them a little bit slowly. <laughs> but, but that brings you back to the bondage of Egypt. And what Moses is actually, if you don't want to admit that, that's fine with me. But if you don't want to admit that, then you're denying the elephant in the room. Because where does that lead you? Eventually, that becomes oppressive, just like it became oppressive. See, they didn't, not only did Pharaoh, uh, a Pharaoh come that did not know Joseph. Israelites grew up who did not know Joseph, did not know what freedom looked like. And so I, I added a audio on uh, one of the chapters this morning that we did in the afternoon program that talks about intentional communities because Moses is moving from an intentional community of bondage to an intentional community of freedom. And they aren't the same thing. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. So, 
We're going to go look into this Exodus 8, and as we get through it uh, and work our way up to Exodus 12, uh, we're going to see some things that are maybe contradictory to things that you've already learned. And that's why we go to all the trouble of making these pages uh, and putting in uh, all these side notes and footnotes and uh, show you the actual, we try to use standard sources like the King James Bible and the Strong's Concordance and uh, the basic sources that you have. We're not going to necessarily pull things out of an invisible hat where we say, well, this is this way and this is that way. We will talk about uh, some of the other archaeologists, uh, David Roll and uh, some of the work that has recently be done, uh, been done by, uh, by patterns of evidence. Well, I should remember that because that's kind of how I got to where I'm at is that I see patterns in language that a lot of other people don't see. I mean, there are people who see it and there are people who don't see it. And one of the reasons we, a lot of times we don't see it is we've been fed information already. Everybody comes to the Scriptures, almost everybody comes to the scriptures with preconceived notions. And the idea of not having those preconceived notions can help set the the captive free and help them understand what's really going on because they don't have the bias of those preconceived notions. So, one of the things that we brought up, and we're going to continue to see it, is this idea of hardening the heart of the Pharaoh. Uh, the Jordan Peterson people actually were kind of catching that to some degree. Somebody bringing up that the word that we see there as hardening the heart of the Pharaoh is actually the same word that means to honor thy father and thy mother. Uh, since he knew Hebrew, he pointed that out. The problem is... That isn't the same word all the time. <laughs> There's, there are several different words that talk about the hardening the heart of the, the Pharaoh. There's Kasha, and there is uh, Chazak, and there is Kabed. And it's Kabed uh, that is the one that has to do with honoring thy father and thy mother, referring to the word honor. And, of course, the word honor also, Kabed, also means liver. Uh, the liver in your body. And we pointed that out, that the, the Hebrew language has words that are symbols of physical things and also the idea of uh, other things like uh, to harden something or to fatten something, because that's actually what it means. It means to increase. Uh, we are to fatten our father and our mother. We actually don't want them to become obese. We want them to be taken care of and provided for. That's why it's part of the commandment. You honor your father and your mother. You take care of your father and your mother. No matter what the burden is on you, you're going to have to sacrifice, you know, maybe that big screen TV because you got to take care of your father and your mother. And that is a key thing so that your days be long upon the land. And even that phrase, days be long upon the land, has to do with being at freedom upon the land. Upon your land. Upon owning your land. You have to honor your father and your mother. And I think that is, it, it's almost, well it is mystical. It, it is poetic. It is, uh, it is, 
uh, ironic that, but it is a part of the plan, that the first thing they want to do to bring you back into the bondage of Egypt <laughs> is to not honor your father and your mother, not take care of your father and your mother, not provide for your father and your mother. Because that is going to be the easiest way. Once you start doing that, it's going to be easy to remove you from the land, which is one of the things they talk about when they went into the bondage of Egypt, when we go back into Genesis, is that they removed the people from the land. The people did not have dominion upon the land that they owned. Somebody else had control over that land. They might be allowed to live there, but they did not own that land. That was not a part of their personal name, their personal estate. It it, it was a shared estate between them and the government of Pharaoh, just as it is today, which is why I mentioned legal title. You can look up legal title at Preparing You. And we're just quoting the definitions right out of the law dictionary that is in every law office throughout the land that legal title is only an apparent title that carries with it no beneficial interest. What Moses was going to do was going to return the people back to a place, to a name, to an identity where they own the beneficial interest. Which is why many of the early people who came to America came to America because they wanted to actually become landed citizens, citizens who owned land in fee simple, untaxed by the king. Yeah, that's where they wanted to get to. And many of them got that way. And they were called the landed Americans. They actually owned land. Even some of the Hessians who, after the, the American Revolution, many of the Hessians, they got to know these Americans and they actually, when their enlistment was up in the German army, they came to America to stay. <laughs> you know, maybe they had married some of those American winches. I don't know. But uh, they came to America to stay because they wanted to own land too. My own great-great-grandfathers wanted to come here to own land. Actually own land. You couldn't do that in most of Europe. But you could do that in America where you would actually own land. But we don't know that history anymore. And they're certainly not teaching it in the modern public schools. But one of the key elements of this new intentional community that we will see eventually as we get to, you know, Exodus. We have to get all the way up to Exodus uh, 22 and start looking at the Ten Commandments to understand that we need to fatten our parents. We need to take care of our parents. We need to provide for our parents and not put that upon the government of Pharaoh. Uh, but in... In the case like in verse 14 of chapter 7, we see the word that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And we see the word kabed. And I've color-coded it now on that page so you, it can jump out and you can know which ones we're dealing with. And I'm not going to explain it in great detail. I mean, I've got footnotes in there that show you the modern concordance definitions of kabed. I show you where they added extra letters that they don't tell you about in your concordance. Uh, but if you look at the original script, you can see that. And that alters the meaning when you add letters. I mean, it, 
It shifts it in one direction or another. But just in the verse before that, if you go to verse 13, it says, And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, which sounds like, well, it's the same word, right? No, it's Chazek. It's a different word. And I gave that the color blue. (laughs) And on that page, it's in footnote 6, and you can go look at it. Uh, But there's another one that they had also used in that chapter, which is uh, Kasha. And, uh, but again, they will add extra letters. Moses added to that word, he added an extra letter, which is Eleph. And Eleph is the letter that stands for the relationship of God and man. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's important that you learn Hebrew, but it's important for you to understand that you're looking at the translations that you're given. I'm not condemning those translations. I mean, I don't know that you can translate Hebrew into English. Uh, I mean, I would not want that task because one single root word in Hebrew may have so many different letters. It can have easily a hundred different letter combinations put in by the same author. And if you read the text and you see the word there, you're not going to know what those letter combinations are. It's literally almost, you almost need a different word to put there each time they change the combination of the letters. Now, sometimes adding the letters kind of has to do with syntax, but not always. It has to do with meaning. And uh, and to figure out that pattern, you would have to have quite the intellect. And But you don't need that. What you need is the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, you're going to see what I'm just showing you all these things so that you see you may have been deceived. You know, it's just like the whole COVID thing. Uh, we just heard on the news this morning that as a prominent, famous person died fairly young of heart failure. What the heck? What's going on? I know, I know more people that have died of heart failure, <laughs> uh, personally know, uh, young people. Who suddenly just die in the middle of the night. No explanation. Nobody seems to know why. It's It's been like pulling teeth to get autopsies of these people. But I don't know anybody personally who died of COVID. But I know a lot of people who have died lately, suddenly, without anybody knowing any reason why they're dead. I mean, they just open up the door and they're dead in there. They they go into the bedroom and they're dead in there. And, and, and nobody knows why. And, but... There's evidence out there, but it doesn't get into the media uh, as to why. But a lot of people are putting the, the things together. But the point is, is you have to admit that maybe you were deceived about things that you believed a couple of years ago that just weren't true. And a lot of people are going to find that very hard to do. Well, I'm coming to show you things that you were deceived about for a century or more. And so my job is really going to be difficult, but you can make it easy by willing to see all things new and and looking deeper into the content of what you thought was true, just checking to see if what you thought was true just ain't so, because that's where people get into trouble. So, uh, one of the things in listening to, and I mentioned it last week, like Jordan Peterson's in his episode four, they talked about italic words in the King James Bible, and you have a 
a whole half a dozen of scholars there, or people who think they're scholars and students of the Bible, and they don't know why King James Bible has italic words in it here and there throughout the text. And they're, they they say, well, I don't know. They just do it. They ask somebody asked the question, but nobody seemed to have the answer. I noticed that you know by the time they got to episode five and episode ten, they had different some different people had changed on their board uh, or their symposium there, whatever that is. Uh, but it is well known. The use of italics is a device to call attention to those words that were added by the translators in order to convey and or clarify the meaning. Whose meaning? If If you think that Moses needed to add more words, don't you think Moses would have known to do that? <laughs> But I understand, and I'm not against it, and I, I commend the translators, or the, the, the printers, I don't know if the translators did it, where they do put in the italics saying that we added these words in order for the text to flow better. And, but that isn't part of the original authorship. And any scholar studying the King James Bible should know that. How are you even reading it if you don't know that? Much less go back to the original Hebrew and see that, oh, they took this Hebrew word and they translated it six different ways. Or they took these three different Hebrew words and we translate them all into hardened. Even though that's not necessarily what they mean. <laughs> so, so you can see a, a problem is kind of developing there. And they talk about, they talked in episode three about monotheism. And, you know, that's a, that's a huge debate in itself. While, you know, monotheism has to assume that everybody in ancient history that talk about these other gods aren't just telling stories to try to impart the different characteristics of God. And we're made in the image of God. So they had a God of courage. And so, it, they didn't, it's a small g God of courage. Did they really mean that there was a guy by this name or are they trying to impart stories like Bible stories to their kids that you need to have courage? You need to have generosity because they had a God of generosity. They had a, a, a God of wisdom. And so they want you to have all these different attributes because all those different attributes are found in the single God of creation. But then what is the God of creation? The will of that God. That will of Yahweh. And this is why we have a whole series of articles and uh, references to nature. The law of nature and nature's God. Divine will. The will of God. Right reason. Have all been considered, you know, a hundred years ago, considered convertible phrases. They're talking about the same thing. They're using different vocabulary to talk about the same thing. So anyway, those are some of the things that we go through in order to rethinking, relooking at the text of Exodus. And we've gone over those things and we will go back to those things. So anyway, they started the plagues. Uh, we started the plagues back in seven, and the first one was this blood, and that is, that's an amazing idea because later on in the Bible, and we have articles up on it, cities of blood, the city of blood. They warn you about creating cities of blood. 
And what are the cities of blood? It's where we have one purse, where we are all in one cauldron. They use the word cauldron. And we be the flesh in that cauldron. Well, that's, we be, we all have that one purse. Because whatever's in, anybody who is a working man knows that what's in your purse is there because of your sweat and blood. If you're a roofer, you put on a metal roof, chances are you've bled on the rooftops. <laughs> and that's just part of the game. It's part of the labor of doing these jobs and sweating, you know, out your life and spending every tick of your heartbeat to do labor get the rewards of those labors and take care of your family and take care of your parents so that their days will be long upon the land so that your days will be long upon the land because your kids will see you doing it and they will imitate that i saw a little video that somebody shared with me of a a little kid and his father watching something on TV and the father suddenly goes, oh, you know, raises his hand like somebody made a score or something. And the little kid in diapers, just a little tiny kid, he raises his hand too in, in the air like, oh, they got a goal. I don't think he knows what the goal is. But his dad's doing it, so he's doing it. <laughs> and then the dad sees something, maybe he pulled a penalty or something. And the dad puts his hands to his forehead and falls back on the couch like, oh, no, they're getting penalized. You know, his team's going to lose or something. And the boy looks back and sees his father putting his hands to his forehead and falling back like he's disappointed. He doesn't know what went on on the screen. But he then immediately puts his hands to his forehead and falls back on the couch as well. So what you do is what you should expect your children to do. Unfortunately, with a lot of us, that the lessons of fatherhood come when your children start imitating you. Or if a man thinks he is wise, let him marry. If he thinks he is patient, let him have children. Then he will find out what patience is. Because your children will bring back all your weaknesses, all your failings, and they will bring them back in your life where you get to see that's me in my son or in my daughter. Uh, that's my wife and my daughter. And you get to deal with it again. And maybe you'll get it right the second time. So that's why we're going through Exodus. Is This is our second time. We're now trying to find the way out. And uh, so history repeats itself. So what's happened is we now live in the city of blood where we take a bite out of one another through the power and through the teeth of government. We want something, we pass a law, they're just, that was just in the news. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're running out of money again. They're gonna have to raise the debt limit. Every time they raise that debt limit, what they're doing is open that little, that little catheter to your blood vein. <laughs> And they're going to be taking more blood out of your arm because that's what they do when they raise the debt, debt limit. All those benefits you get from the government, that doesn't come from the blood of the government. That comes in the blood of your neighbor. You're taking a, you're devouring one another. Every time you raise that debt limit, you're devouring one another. And you're going deeper, deeper into that bondage. And there is no way out but the way of Christ. And Christ was showing us that way because the time of Jesus Christ paralleled the time of Egypt. They were going back into the bondage of Egypt. 
They were registering for a system of social welfare through the government of Herod. And they were doing the same thing in Rome and they were doing the same thing in Ephesus. And uh, getting away from what you would have as a system of social welfare through free will offerings. And, and that's what John the Baptist, read our article on John the Baptist, our article on Herod. They were setting up institutions to take away from their neighbor to provide them with benefits. These were the covetous practices that Peter writes about and warns you that you will become entangled again in these covetous practices. I don't see, I don't see Jordan Peterson and his scholars exposing that elephant in the room. That, and this is why they're having such a hard time with chapter 12. I haven't gone, the part of chapter 12 is in their Exodus uh, 6. It takes a lot of time to put these studies together, so we're going to start, because there's 32 verses in this, uh, this next chapter 8. And so we're going to start that right now, and we'll finish it up in the next half. But this Exodus 8 starts with the second plague, which is a plague of frogs. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now, who's his people? Now, we can say as the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, and certainly it is those, but it isn't just those that are going to be let go. There's going to be a lot of Egyptians go with them. Because my people, the people that have the heart of God prevailing in them, the name of God prevailing in them, are those that are willing to step out in faith and follow the ways that Moses is going to be showing them in this intentional community. And there will be a filtering process in this. And the plagues themselves are a filtering process. And you can expect a similar process in your own times. We're, we're now preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's different than what a lot of people have been telling you. So that in itself, willing to see that there's a difference between what you were told over here and what you're told over here, you're going to have to decide in your heart and mind which way you want to go. And that's going to be dependent, that will be dependent upon the Holy Spirit operating in your heart. In order to let that Holy Spirit in, you're going to have to do some serious repentance. That's a changing of the way you think. And you're going to also have to do some serious humility, which is part of that changing of the way you think. And you're going to have to do some serious forgiveness. Forgiveness not only of yourself, but of all the other people that have lied to you and led you back into the bondage of Egypt. So anyway, verse 2. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. Okay, now, they're talking to the Pharaoh alone. But the reality is, and to some degree, the, the Israelites have already gone through this. The Egyptians are going to have to go through this. Because it's not just Pharaoh who is refusing to let the people go. At first, the, the magicians they talk about are refusing to let them go. They change their mind before Pharaoh does. <laughs> and we'll look at that. But eventually, the Egyptian people, 
are going to have to let the Israelites go. Want to let them go. Now, some of them just want them to get lost. But some of them actually want to let them go and bless them. And some of the Egyptians actually go with them. So this idea of letting them go, you're in that boat too. If you keep wanting the benefits from Pharaoh or from the federal government or from, you know, the queen, uh, whatever country you're in, you don't want to let your neighbor go. You want your benefits. You don't care that it's at the expense of your neighbor. You don't care that it's a covetous practice. But you're going to have to want to let your neighbor go. I'm not sneaking up on you with this. We've been talking about this for a long time. But the people, I don't hear anybody in Jordan Peterson's group even mentioning this. But I'll I'll give them time. There's a lot more episodes to come. We'll see if they get closer and closer. (laughs) But anyway, in verse 3, And the river shall bring forth... Frogs abundantly which shall go up and come into thine house and into the bedchambers and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants upon thy people and into thine ovens and into thy kneading troughs. You don't want frogs in your kneading troughs. Well, there's a lot of questions as to whether there's fishes. I mean, what, 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 what? If these are really frogs or something else or what they represent, but we'll have to look at that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom and get deeper, deeper into the way out, which is Exodus. So be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom, and we're looking at Exodus. We're in verse 4 of chapter 8, and it says, The frogs shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. So, considering the fact that all the people actually served the Pharaoh to begin with, with this one-fifth of their labor, this term that we see, and all thy servants actually is either more encompassing or it's actually referring to somebody else. So we go to Exodus uh, chapter 8, verse 4. One of the things that we were talking about, and I'm going to remind people of this again because it's an important thing, and I just saw it when I was looking because I was actually in chapter 7 there, is that uh, in chapter 7, verse 4, they talk about the armies of Moses. And again, the armies of Moses were not an army of soldiers, although everybody in in the nation were expected to arm themselves and protect the nation. They actually, that's why they feared that the Israelites might join the enemy if the enemy came, and they because they were so strong and they were such an independent people. And the more they oppressed them, the stronger as individuals they got. And... Uh, And that was because the more they had to rely upon the family and the less they had to rely on government. And even when Moses comes there and the the Pharaoh says, you're still going to have to pay your tally of bricks, but I'm not going to give you any benefits. I'm not going to give you any straw. I'm not going to give you any help. You're going to have to get that on your own, but you're still going to have to, because that's how they measured 
a lot of the labor of the Israelites. Now, other people, they had all kinds of different skills and they could do all kinds of different things. But generally speaking, the community kind of paid its obligation of tribute or corvi to the government by the manufacture of bricks. And uh, that's both a symbol of their one-fifth owed to the government, but it's also, you know, because of the particular location of Goshen and its ability to draw the clay up out of the out of the river that was deposited every year and make new bricks. And so they had to transport those bricks to all the places that they built, and that was a commodity. And, of course, one-fifth of the bricks just went for free to the government. And uh, the tally of that brick may have gone up as through Crafts of State. They started counting the children as laborers at a younger and younger age. If you were... If you, one of the other things that we note is that one group of people did not go into the bondage of, of Egypt. And that was the priests did not go. We go back to Genesis, we'll find that the priests of the nation, which isn't necessarily the priests of, you know, some pagan temple, it, they actually, had a role in the social welfare system of Egypt. And that that's why they were in charge of the granary because the granary was the resources to take care of the people in the time of need. And when we go look at, when we see the church strain from the formula of Christ into the formula of Constantine, we'll find that the bishops are actually in charge of grain shipments and grain storage for the empire. Because the grain was how they provided the welfare of the people. is through the grain. Because you could store wealth and you could store resources in grain. I mean, all your cattle could die out, or at least enough of them, so there wasn't going to be enough meat to go around if there was uh, some disease like anthrax go through. Or there's a drought, the cattle were very vulnerable. But in Egypt, the grain was not vulnerable to droughts, generally speaking, unless the Nile River did not overflow its banks and they did not get the water to irrigate with. So, But you could store grain. You couldn't store meat for 50 years. You could store grain for 50 years. And so the guys in charge of the granaries were the priests because the priests were in charge of the welfare of society. That's part of the role of the priests. And the armies of Pharaoh, excuse me, the armies of Moses, the armies of Moses were the Levites. And the Levites were actually priests to some degree in Egypt. We know this because Aaron knew the arts of the temple. And the arts of the temple included grain storage because the temple was there for welfare. And as we've studied temples, you can look up temples that prepare you. Same thing was going on in Rome. And he who controlled the grain <laughs> often ended up controlling the people. And uh, and the the Caesars rose to power on the price of grain. And of course now recently we've seen the price of Things going up, especially eggs, went up suddenly for whatever reason. Baby formula went up for whatever reason. 
But somebody has control of the markets, but they have control of the markets because the people don't even own themselves and they don't know how to operate as a free community. So if we go back to uh, Exodus 8, verse 4, we see that word servant there. Now, I knew that word servant in several places is uh, abedeka. Uh, well, the word for servant is is much simpler than that particular word. It's only elef, be it, delet. But in when he's writing that word servant there, he is adding a yod and a cuff. And what he's doing by doing that is saying that it's the servants, the immediate servants, the the cohorts, so to speak, of Pharaoh. Because all the people were servants of Pharaoh. And actually, if you go up to the, the Hebrew word for uh, all the, and on your people, referring to the people of Pharaoh, there's another word with numerous extended letters into it, which is Ubam Mecca. Uh, which again has that cuff at the end, but also has a vav at the beginning, and it has the be it an uh, mem in it, representing uh, the an mem representing people. But it's the people of his household, the people which not mean his immediate household, but of the nation itself. So they, they're talking about all kinds of subject people, but they're actually talking about specific uh, different statuses within this community of Egypt. But now, why frogs? Why are frogs coming up? Well, we'll tell you the physical reason why later, but it is important. Well, it's not necessarily important, but it's it's valuable maybe to know. Uh, and you can look at like all kinds of different commentaries, Ellicott's commentary. The frogs were sacred animals to the Egyptians who regarded them as a symbol of procreative power. They were very, you know, a couple of frogs, you put them in an aquarium, and they reproduce, they can reproduce thousands and thousands of frogs in the form of tadpoles, and eventually they become frogs. One one frog can do that. They can lay all kinds of different eggs. And uh, so they're kind of this, part of this god of procreative power, and it's associated with a specific Egyptian goddess, Heka, uh, who was the wife of Neph. And uh, they even you even see this uh, this goddess with a frog head. They put a frog head on her when they carve her uh, image into the sides of buildings, etc. But now, all of a sudden, the frogs are going to become this plague. And it's natural to believe that the frogs would become this plague... Because you just had all the fish die in the river. And the fish aren't going to eat, be eating the eggs. They're not going to be eating the tadpoles. Uh, you know, frogs can lay millions and millions of eggs. And now nothing's eating the eggs. Nothing's eating the tadpoles. The nature, the law of nature has been interrupted. And so now you're going to get an imbalance. You're going to get something else that takes place. And so... The idea that all the frogs are going to come out would be almost predictable because you just saw all the fish die. And now the red tide's gone, and now, but the frogs, they breathe air. They didn't suffocate. They don't have gills. Now, tadpoles, probably 
suffocated when they're in the water because they, they operate with gills at least for a while. So the tadpoles died too. But now all of a sudden the frogs have all that they can eat and they're going to have the tendency to lay even more eggs. And nothing's going to eat those eggs. Nothing's going to eat those tadpoles. So within a very short period of time, expect to see frogs. <laughs> of course, that's what the next plague is. And so in verse 5 we see, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. Not just one place. He evidently went around. He was doing this. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. They're all over the place. And doing all those things that we read in the earlier verses. Now the magicians. Now that's an interesting word to study the magician. But the magicians actually came with their supposed enchantments, that we have this word enchantments, that's going to mean one thing in your head. It might have meant something different back there in the Hebrew. We would have to explore the letters. But some group of guys, they're calling the magicians, came with their enchantments, and they also supposedly brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Now, I assume Aaron's not going around everywhere at one time, and maybe these guys had some secrets. Maybe they understood the law of nature. I mean, there was a lot of wisdom in Egypt that came down through the ages. Moses had access to all that. He understood all that. But they claim, well, we brought these frogs. We could bring frogs forth just like Moses. That's not alleviating the plague. Alleviating the plague would be like these magicians being Pied Pipers and saying, all the frogs follow me out to the desert. <laughs> you know, so, anyway, that's a plague. Everybody's seen this come. They're seeing Moses could seems to be able to do this. They're seeing the magicians are also able to do it. So, it's a real inconvenient, but he's Moses is tying it to the idea that you need to let my people go. And so, the Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in verse 8 and said... Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Because that's what the call was for. Do this sacrifice unto the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is what is the ultimate goal here? Now God has already told Moses. Moses hasn't explained it in great detail to Pharaoh. He's taking it. He's bringing the message to Pharaoh that God says to bring to Pharaoh. And so, and this is what is part of that hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. It isn't God taking away the free choice of Pharaoh. It is God knowing and understanding Pharaoh being the ultimate divine psychologist of humanity and saying, do this to Pharaoh because I'm going to, eventually we're going to get Pharaoh not only to let you go, but he's going to make you go. He's going to make the people go. They're not going to be able to sit back and say, well, go ahead, Moses, you take off. We'll catch up with you in a couple of months, but we got some stuff. We got some crops in. We don't want to leave right now. And so, you know, you go ahead and take off, but that's not the way God's going to do it. He's going to drive them out. They're going to have to leave. And the, and fortunately for the Egyptians that stay back, it, they do leave. Uh, but then what are they going to eat? Uh, but anyway, that 
we'll cross that bridge when we get there. <laughs> so anyway, so the Pharaoh called to Moses and said, you know, he's going to let him go sacrifice. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy house that they may remain in the river only? Because it wasn't just that there were a lot of frogs. They were so many frogs, they were coming up on the land. Part of the reason they were coming up on the land is there wasn't anything to eat, not to feed that many frogs. So they came looking for them. That's the way it goes. I once found... Probably at least two, three thousand frogs in a plumbing pipe <laughs> in an old house north of here that they, they, they had this clog and they couldn't figure out what it was. And what had happened is that frogs had gotten into their septic tank. It was old house, old way of doing things, not a proper cover of their septic tank. Frogs had got in there, laid eggs. It wasn't always occupied, so there was a lot of water in there. And the frogs hatched out, and they went up the they went up the pipe, and there was literally a statue of a tube of frogs, baby frogs, that had clogged their entire plumbing. I had to take things apart in order to get them all out. It was amazing, but this was happening on a nationwide scale. The frogs had to go somewhere, and so they went up on the land, and so. Moses talks about that in river only in verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, and he said, be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So not only the arrival of the frogs, but the departure of the frogs is going to be through the hand of Moses. And the frogs shall depart from thee and from thy house and from thy servants and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. And Moses and Aaron went out from the Pharaoh and Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought up, brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. So it said they died out. Now when you look at that word, did they actually all hop back to the river? Or did they just die out and then the, they were content to stay in the river? And why would they be content to stay in the river? Well, that's because of the next plague. And they gathered them together upon a heap and the land stank. So they didn't just all hop back to the river. They died. They gathered together and there were were dead, stinking, rotten frogs everywhere. But when the Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So now he's changing his mind. He's backtracking. And he's hardening. Kabed is the word there. So, now the third plague. Verse 16. And what's the third plague? Gnats. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with a rod, and smote the dust of the earth and it became lice in man 
and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So what is this lice that are coming out? You know, actually, just a a minute ago, I I saw it here. I actually have a gnat. We see the word lice here. Other people say gnat. There's a flying gnat that bites that's out in the desert. It's in the desert here, and it's in the desert out there. there, Although they're slightly different, but they're basically the same thing. And they... They like it warm, they like it hot, they like it dry, they don't like shade, they they move to the light, and uh, uh, they're a biting fly. And that's one of the reasons a lot of Arabs wear the headdresses that they wear, is to keep, you know, if you wear a baseball cap, they will bite you around the, the brim and, and in the back and everything. And it was funny, while I was talking here, I saw one of those gnats actually alive on my screen in the middle of January. (laughs) So, I don't know, is that a sign? But, uh, yeah, they're out here and they can come in plague proportions. They must have some natural predators, but for some reason they came in a plague proportion there in Egypt. I remember when I was a small boy, I saw Arabs moving into a house in a travel film, an old black and white TV Back in the 60s, or maybe, yeah, be in the 60s. And before he entered the house, he rubbed his head backwards two, three times. And I noticed it was like a Kodak moment of him rubbing his head. He had his hands moving over his head. He had his Arab hat on. And then he went into the house. And I thought, like, what's that? Is that some sort of religious thing? You know, why, why was he doing that? Well, when I moved out here to the desert some 40, 50 years ago, <laughs> I found out why. Is that you had to brush the noceums off your head before we got trees. We were plagued with noceums from time to time. And it's that little biting gnat. And you would brush your head off before you went in the house. Because if you walked in, they were all on the back of your head. We actually wore the Arab hats out here. If you walked into the house, you brought them with you. Once they were in the house, then they would start to bite people in the house. I mean, not ferociously, not like the desert. But you didn't want to bring them in, so you brushed them off before you came in. Because they'd always be up on the top of your head. And so, anyway, so it was like 30 years later, I go like, that's why, that's why that guy was brushing his head. (laughs) And the Kodak moment had come to full fruition. So, anyway... So now we got these gnats coming up. And they're, they call them lice because lice bite too. But these are actually, these fly. And they're, they're really gnats. But in the, when it was translated, they didn't know much about these gnats in England when they were translating the King James Bible. So they call it lice. We'll see that with a few of the other things. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth more lice. But they could not. They couldn't bring forth the lice. They could bring forth the frogs, supposedly. But they had trouble bringing forth the lice upon man and upon beast. And the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. So the magicians are getting, you know, converted. They're saying, oh my gosh, this is the finger of God. And now we see it capitalized there, God. But they may not have thought it the God. But they saw that... Moses has got power we don't have. and But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Shazak, 
is the word there. And he hearkened not unto the magicians, unto them, as the Lord had said. That he's not going to do what they're saying. This is his God. You know, we should back off on this. We should maybe think about what we're going to do here, comply in some way to get Moses to stop this. So now we come to the fourth plague, which is the plague of flies. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he hath come forth to the water and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go. That's the people that want to go out and sacrifice in the intentional community of God instead of the intentional community of Pharaoh. They're sacrificing in Pharaoh's community. Community. They, they sacrifice when they give them their tally of bricks, when they give them one-fifth of their labor and whatever uh, skill or art they know. They're already sacrificing, which we're going to see sacrifice is a part of worship. But he's saying, let my people go. That means the people that want to go out and sacrifice my way. Because if you don't want to go at my way, you're not going to go out. You're not going to follow Moses because Moses is going a particular way that they may serve me instead of Pharaoh. Now, originally he was only asking for three days, but then Pharaoh gave him a hard time, which God seemed to know that he was going to do. And so now he may be upping the ante, which we will see as we go, you know, because every time Pharaoh goes back on his deal, he gets in deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like a drug addict. He cannot resist. He cannot let go of power over the people. Uh, He's going to get a little ticked at his servants here because they're kind of saying, you know, you need to do something different, Pharaoh. And one of those servants was probably a guy named Ippawar. And we'll we'll look at that. And we actually have some quotes from Ippawar on this page in the side panel. But in verse 21, we see... Else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants. There's that word servants again. And upon thy people and into thy houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground whereon they are. Well, we know the ground is already covered with dead frogs. And first we see gnats. And now we've seen the flies come. Uh, the noceums, they come at a certain time. The flies come at a certain time. And there's a reason why they come at a certain time. And we don't have as big a trouble with flies out here. But uh, there are plagues out here in the desert. We see how that operates. Because of the, the if you... In the desert is a very delicate balance. If you change the balance, you'll change the balance of nature. All our rights are dependent upon the law of nature. If you're in a legal system, they don't call them rights anymore. Sometimes they do, but what they're really talking about is privileges. And we're going to see that Goshen is spared in this process as we go into verse 22. How is Moses, this is the real miracle. How is Moses sparing Goshen? How is he protecting those people of Goshen, which is probably the people in Avaris and some of the other people around about, and eventually even the Egyptians? 
get spared some of these plagues. What is he doing to spare them? He may not be telling us everything in there. We just know that the people of Goshen were spared. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So Goshen is spared. Goshen is either doing something or knows something or is getting a heads up on all these things that are going on in the in in this uh scenario of events that somehow that they're spared. Now I don't know how how do you get swarms of flies not to go in a particular area but go everywhere else? Well, if you know the area that we're talking about, there's a lot more breeze that is possible in that area. Moses knows what's coming next. He has insight into this. He's a genius. He's, he knows how nature works. He's learned all the things that the, the magicians learned and then some because he went out and ultimately he has the ultimate teacher of the universe, which is that divine creator, that law of nature. And I added, uh, Recordings talking about Moses is going to teach the people a way to pray and that we call meditation and it's, it's cloaked in the Hebrew and people who want to see it and understand it could. We're going to show you in the time we already have. We have a whole page on meditation so that the people begin to see. You got to remember at the beginning of all this, the people didn't want to listen to Moses. And and even Moses knew they weren't going to listen to him. And he says to God, he says, they're not going to listen to me. Why, why should they listen to me? I mean, who, who am I going to say is sending me? And they don't even know. I mean, we do see the word Yahweh. I, I mentioned earlier that this is the first time we see this idea, this word Yahweh. Well, it's the first time Moses saw it. Moses uses Yahweh in Genesis, but... Genesis was written after uh, Moses already lived through Exodus. He didn't write Genesis and then go to Egypt and then write. And no, he wrote them all before. And again, like I said, there's evidence, and and we may have time to look at some of that. David Rowell and this, uh, who wrote the Exodus myth or history, where he talks about some of the things that go on, and he actually quotes this Egyptian Ipawar saying that he's talking about the plagues. And there's arguments for and against this. And it often has a lot to do with where Moses is at and where the Israelites are at in time. And everybody says it's over here with Ramses because there is a Ramses mentioned, usually as a place, in the scripture. Well, that may have been written in much different. Or it may have been a name that was used back before that, but it's not referring to uh, the king Ramesses, but it's re- referring really to the, a, a place that it was identified as Ramesses. Now, some of those changes might have been taking place in scripts as they were passed down. It doesn't have anything to do with understanding the message of Moses. I'm just saying that the time that Moses existed was probably much earlier than what a lot of people have accepted. And like I quote David Rowe in this patterns of, patterns of evidence, 
because of the fact that they are showing a lot of evidence that they got the time frame off. But anyway, back to verse 22. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now he says, there's not, he didn't say there wasn't going to be any flies. He said there wasn't going to be any swarms of flies. So there may still be flies there. There probably always is. But there's not going to be the swarms. They're going to concentrate outside of this land of Goshen and probably this area of Averis. Why? Well, we don't necessarily know why. He doesn't really tell us. But he, he, if the frogs ever even went there, and maybe they did something so that the frogs didn't come there, he probably had them cleaning up the frogs. Don't leave the frogs laying around. <laughs> it's going to stink. Uh, get rid of them. Throw them out in the river. Let them go down the river. Whatever. But clean up. You know, and that's one of the first things that Moses did in his intentional, intentional community. It was talking about food laws, keeping clean, not, uh, engaging in practices that could spread disease. So he may have, maybe that's why Moses seems to have some control over wind. Uh, going back to the burning bush and the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that we're going to see, maybe there was some intervention that the breeze that's out there on in that area of Goshen out there on the delta wasn't getting the swarms of flies. But we know, according to this text, they were spared. They know, too. They're saying, I'm going with Moses. Moses is giving us a heads up. He told us what to do because the red tide, so that we had water and water to share. Again, that's from other extra uh, biblical texts. But it is important to win the hearts of Egyptian people. We're seeing the magicians' uh, hard hearts are beginning to crumble, but the Pharaoh is sticking to his guns. So, anyway, we see in verse 23, And I will put a division between my people and thy people tomorrow shall this sign be. So the fact that some people still got the swarms and they didn't, that's part of the sign. That is one of the real miracles that we're looking at here. If you want to call them miracles, we've talked about that. There's probably a reason for it, but everybody's going to be impressed. And he says, and the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh. The word grievous there is that same word kabed, the harden of the heart. So this is a fruitful, <laughs> because remember, this word means fatten. It means to increase. It, and here it says grievous, but it's an increase of a swarm of flies into the very house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt, and the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. Verse 25, And the Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Now, notice he says, called for Moses and Aaron. You know, before Moses is coming to him, now he's calling. He says, oh, okay, go sacrifice your land. And Moses said, it is not meat so to do, for we shall sacrifice the 
abomination of Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? There were laws against giving gifts gratuities uh, to God to take the, what belonged to Pharaoh, which was the sacrifice of the people, that 20% of their labor, and, and give it to somebody else. You couldn't do that. It was illegal. It was in their codes. And so, you know, we're, we don't, we're not going to do our sacrifice here. We got to go somewhere else to have our sacrifice. We have to have a different status. We have to be outside of the jurisdiction, the immediate jurisdiction of Pharaoh in order to do this so that, and, and, and at a distance, which is what they had always asked. We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. And the Pharaoh said, I will let you go and ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away in treat for me. He's saying, I don't want you to go too far away. And Moses says in verse 29, Behold, I go out from thee And I will entreat the Lord that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from this his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, God's setting this up from the beginning. But he's warning, giving Pharaoh the heads up. Don't fake this. Don't say you're free and then not let us go free. You're going to get yourself in a lot of a world of hurt if you do this. And Moses went out from the Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. There remained not one. And the Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Again, Kabad. Hardened it, his heart swelled up with this selfishness. And, uh, you know, because he already had a selfish heart. That hasn't changed. But now he got more selfish. You know, increase. Grievously selfish. Kabed. Neither would he let the people go. So he went back on his deal. He operated deceitfully. And we'll see in chapter 9, which we'll start probably next time. <laughs> but we want to go through some of the things that we have here in the side note. Again, Moses is doing this not just to teach Pharaoh a lesson, not just to teach the Israelites a lesson, not but to also teach the people of Egypt so that they learn. So you have these, uh, if we go back and, and review a little bit, we, we see that the, the magicians couldn't do everything, you know, and that, you know, the, the basic word there is tartom, which is chetresh tet, Mem. But the the rest of the magician is hey the what we see actually in the text is hey chet resh tet mem yod mem. So they add these extra letters and it's rather a long word when they're referring to these magicians. And so there's a reason for that. We won't go into that, we won't have enough time, but remember the fish died in the water, 
So, and they died probably of oxygen starvation because this redness was plugging up their gills. It's a common occurrence. doesn't happen to the extent. It doesn't happen in all the water everywhere, but it happened at this time everywhere. And all the fish were dying everywhere. But the frogs didn't die. And so now the tadpoles that come from the frogs ended up producing this plague of frogs. You could say, and some people say that. But again, the miracle is, is that they didn't harass the people in Goshen. <laughs> that's the that's the miracle you want. If you only want the miracle that harasses your enemy, you're not a Christian. You want, you know, God, let God harass your enemy. You want to be spared that harassment. In order to do that, you have to start doing what God wants you to do. And that's what the Israelites were learning to do, is to do what Moses told them to do. So, without the frogs to eat the lice... Uh, the lice also grew, but then all these frogs come up, but there's a there's a time shifting that, you know, all of a sudden, now you have this other bloom that takes place with this lice or fleas or gnats. It's probably gnats is a better way of, it's from a single Hebrew word, uh, kingdom. And uh, that's, it's not important. One of the things that you, you might want to know is that that same gnat that I saw on my uh, screen just a little while ago, that biting black fly that actually was in here. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit smaller than a fruit fly. That uh, And why it's in here, I have no idea. Actually, it seems to have departed because uh, we're past that verse. But uh, it was hanging on the screen because it goes to the light. That's where it goes towards the light. Which, if you were smart, you would not burn any light at night in your house when these things were outside. <laughs> And because you don't want to bring them into your house. Because at night when the sun goes down, those lice, those gnats are going to fly into your house. But what they also carry is a a disease, Yersinia pestis, uh, which is the bubonic plague, basically, in different forms. Bubonic plague, it can get more severe at times and then less severe at times. And that's carried by a biting flea or lice. It can actually be carried by these gnats as well. And we have it out here, and they call it tularemia. And I actually had a neighbor kid who got tularemia. He's one of the homeschoolers that were out here for years and years. He now lives up in Alaska, uh, where there is no gnats for a large period of time here. <laughs> but uh, he got it, and he broke out with boils. <laughs> so, but that we're not to that plague yet. But uh, you got to remember, all these guys are maybe getting this disease and even though the gnats are going away next thing you know they're going to be breaking out with uh, you know fevers, chills, headaches and weakenings and swelling of the lymph node glands and the groins and in the armpits and in the neck because those are the symptoms but so scientists say all these plagues are, are to be expected and we can go look at them later blue tongue is an African horse sickness that can get into other animals we don't usually get blue tongue up here because of the fact that we have such a short season because we're higher altitude and it gets colder. And blue tongue seems to have, it, it is spread by insects, but it uh, doesn't come this far north. Of course, in Egypt, they didn't have trouble with frost. So, yeah, if you had this imbalance, you're, you're liable to get this. And it can kill large amounts. Uh, you know, it's kind of related to distemper and measles. And you can get different forms at different times, you know, different viruses, just like smallpox. They probably had smallpox 
that's another thing that could have been spread at that time. It was in Rome early on, killed half the male population of Rome at one time. But it evolves as well, as we've seen lately with the COVID. And then you have Omicron variants. You get all these variants. But all these things are coming, and Moses knows they're coming. He says they're coming. They go away when Moses says they go away. And he can actually spare certain areas of the country. And as we'll eventually see, he will even spare cattle. But all this is talked about in a... a, didactic literature called the admonitions of Epur, which is a guy they spell it a couple of different ways just like tut moses they also spell it dita uh moses depending on whether you're looking at the greek spelling of these egyptian words or or the more romanized but he wrote a scroll that survived at least a copy of it has survived and that's the question is when did he write it did he write it at the time of egypt or did he write it at another time? And when was the tr- time of Exodus in Egypt? So his time element is a big thing. But a lot of people attribute this papyrus at Leiden. I think they number it 344. It is explaining plagues. And a guy who is a servant of Pharaoh who is... Arguing with Pharaoh, in a way, I mean, you don't want to argue too much, because a Pharaoh can put anybody to death he wants, which goes back to this thing. If if Moses, at the age that he was at, he would have been literally the rightful heir or throne of Egypt, uh, and and not like Tut Moses, but Moses Moses, <laughs> Uh, and the right to rule. He had the right to kill that Egyptian according to Egyptian legal system. But if you have a strict interpretation of the Ararats and the, the Maharats, excuse me, of the uh, Egyptian law, not so much as free. It just depends on when you look at it. Just like the Hammurabi codes. They even talk about the laws of Moses being similar to the Hammurabi codes. But... Uh, David Roll kind of puts all this, and we mentioned his name on the page. You can look him up. He's got all kinds of videos out, and he explains. And I don't agree with him all the time, but I think he's onto something. And he talks about this Ipuru was an eyewitness to the calamities of the Egyptian history when foreigners had brought the great civilization of Egypt to its knees. That's what the the scroll is about. We don't have all the scroll, and. This is a copy of the scroll uh, made many, many years ago. Uh, But beetles have eaten away some of the stuff. But we have enough of it that we see an amazing similarity. This extraordinary parallels to biblical stories uh, where he laments the fact that one of the earlier pharaohs had not just wiped out these Asiatics, these foreigners, these Israelites, when they first came. You know, why didn't we just genocide them? Not a good guy, this guy. He has the spirit of tyranny, you know. I mean, he might have worked for, <laughs> you know, uh, some, you know, Mao Zedong or, uh, or some of the other, uh, murderous people of history. But he's, he's suggesting that they should have just wiped him out then. But they didn't want to wipe him out because they, they really were good workers and we could, we are a lot of our wealth came from there, and we'll talk more about you know how they were in mining and everything 
which is, there's evidence of that where it shows the Hebrew language was probably started as a written language and that's what it was meant to be, only a written language, not a, a vocabulary spoken language, but a written language way back with Joseph. Joseph was the one who probably was instituting the original Hebrew language. But anyway, so you have these, and we'll quote from him about these plagues when we go through chapter 9 and uh, chapter 10 and 11, and we'll show you some of the similarities. But this is just more evidence that this actually took place at an earlier time than most people think. And But the key thing is, what we do not want to do is unmoor the message of Moses and the meaning of what he was doing. He was, again, removing the people. And they were not going to go lightly on their own. Some would follow on their own. But they were going to literally, in order to get the numbers out that they were going to need to get, they would have to be driven out of Egypt. And so God is arranging this because... God is a much better psychologist than even Jordan Peterson. <laughs> and if he ever hears this recording, I mean that with all love <laughs> and consideration uh, of his uh, remarkable skills. Because I've, I've watched him in action in s- some of his interviews. He's an amazing individual. But he, they seem to be absolutely lost when it comes to Exodus 12. And when we get to Exodus 12, I hope to have... I've I've started adding to more articles already to surround Exodus 12 so that you can go and find out what the leaven was all about, what the feasts were all about, what 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 is the righteousness of God, what is what is this sacrifice to the Lord all about? What what does God really want you to burn up sheep, pile up stones and burn up sheep? We've got articles on that already. And it is a huge transition to go from what you think Exodus is about to what Exodus is really about. But it's a huge transition to go from the bondage of Egypt to a free society, to a free nation under God. Indivisible. Because you're bound together by the... What Malone calls, and I put up a video uh, audio on that just uh, back uh, probably in seven or six. Uh, I want, yeah, maybe it's seven. You can go look for it. But it's on meditation and on Malone. What he said, we, we need to, uh, you know, our society is sick. It's diseased. We need to reform the bands of a free society. And how you do that is what Moses is really talking about. It's what the feasts are really about. It's what the altars are really about. It's what religion and pure religion is really about. It's not about, you know, words and names where you gotta say Yahweh or you gotta say Jehovah or you can't say it and you gotta say Yadivahe and all this stuff. But what you don't want is your heart to be hardened. Jazak. <laughs> you want your heart to be kabed with the righteousness of God. You want it to be filled with the righteousness of God, not with the swarms of flies of Egypt and, and the bondage of Egypt. In order to do that, you have to be able to have the humility to admit that you've been 
deceived and fooled. And then look at all things anew. And then not only forgive yourself, but to forgive your brothers. And to even forgive those you think are your enemy. Because if you judge them, God will not. The, the more you judge your enemies, the more you try to punish your enemies with your own hand and heart, the more God will not. You want to leave vengeance to God. You want to leave hatred, because <laughs> it's not real hatred, and we're going to talk about that too as we get farther into this. Did Moses become angry at Pharaoh? Because it says he did. Well, we're going to look at that word. But we just don't have time in this this show. But with the grace of God, we will continue this in the shows to come. Join the network at Preparing You, and we'll keep you updated. Until then, peace upon your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.